0: Welcome to Looking Backward, where we analyze an entrepreneur's past to learn about the skill set, experiences, and network that they have built over the years to put them on the trajectory that they're on now. I'm your host, Chad Sikoncik. All right. Today, we're here with Matthew Boyda. He is a Canadian first, a Texan second. Uh, Matt is... Just a, a developer, business person. He works in energy. I, I'm kind of confused a little bit of what he actually does. I, he's told me a bunch of times, but it's so complex that I'm just going to let him speak for himself and let him kind of give you guys a, uh, um, an idea of where the end point of the story is. Yeah, I, I think
1: the, the thing that I like to talk about the most with what I do now is it's a very niche industry. It's a very large industry that mostly large firms such as banks and hedge funds participate in. Uh, But really, at the core of it is I work with technology that predicts how power is going to flow on the power grid so that these firms can make financial transactions to capitalize on congestion, which
0: causes price differentials. Okay, so it's... Essentially a stock market for energy. Yeah. Do, you, do you manage the stock market or do you provide like a Bloomberg terminal for the stock market? It's
1: almost like a Bloomberg terminal, but with analytics and forecasting
0: price separations in the commodity. Okay. So for anybody that doesn't know what a Bloomberg terminal is, it's just a very expensive news station or a news computer that you subscribe to. That gives you you know if, if you think about the stock market it takes it, it's second by second trading so getting the story 20 seconds before someone else can mean you know a huge win or huge loss so these things are hardwired in to get the data as quickly as humanly possible so what you're saying is that you're providing this this service and crunching all of this data to provide it to your end users as quickly as possible in order to so they can you know capitalize on you know that a congestion is coming up pretty soon so they need to raise their prices.
1: Yes, or, or place a bid to purchase, buy low and sell high. The, the old economic
0: saying "buy low, sell high" is very apparent within this industry. Okay, and so this is our first example of a, an acquisition kind of setup. So your company was called. Energetics, yes, and it was purchased by Genscape. So, is it called Energetics still, or is that the name of the software, or is that a department? Completely
1: reimaged, renamed. It's now called Congestion IQ, uh, but we kept the Energetics term hidden behind the scenes in the
0: code throughout the application. So, it's as an Easter egg to jump out at some point, in exactly in the exactly. near exactly. future. Got it. <laughs> Um, okay. So uh, this is super, super complex stuff. Um, I've known you for a long time and it, you know, I feel like I kind of understand it, but it's, it's super complex. So what's very interesting is how you got from where you started to here. So like we said, you're from Canada. Where, how, what was your first job? What was the first thing that you were doing? So I grew up in a town of 500 people. Uh, an hour away
1: from the biggest city, Edmonton. And I basically grew up on a farm. So uh, I, I farmed uh, with my grandparent, my uh, grandpa. And uh, we we spent hours and hours out there where you're either by yourself sitting on a tractor in the middle of the field or sitting a, out in the middle of a field trying to figure out how to fix a piece of equipment with three three tools. And what it really it was interesting is it taught me to not just jump on in and try to fix a problem, but to think about it, think the the solution from the very beginning to the end before actually even picking up a tool and trying to fix something. So it really taught me on how to approach problem solving um from, from the beginning to the end,
0: which it, is really interesting. That's an interesting thing because you know, we, we talked to Hunter, who's our the other developer that we talked to, and He works at Facebook and Facebook's whole idea is to move fast and break things. And when we develop things at Better Legal, it's, I always try not to, you know, we always try to define the problem first and then we sleep on it and say, okay, well, let's not come up with a solution now because you're just kind of forcing a solution that you're not, you haven't really fully processed the problem yet. So... We do the work up front to process the problem and understand the root of the problem. And then we everybody steps away. We come back the next day and we kind of let our brains do the background processing, I think, that that a lot of people need to do. You know, if you think about just having a problem and banging your head against the wall and then you, like, step away from it and you're in the shower or on a run, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, that's the obvious yeah. solution. It's so frustrating because you're like, why didn't I think of that yesterday? Yeah. So, so I like that. That concept of thinking because I think everybody wants to move so fast nowadays instead of, you know, defining the problem and defining what the actual root cause of the problem is and then letting your brain do the work that it's designed to do to come up with a solution naturally.
1: So. Yeah, and like I like to I, – I joke all the time that I sometimes come up with my best solutions as while I'm taking a shower mm-hmm. because you're not thinking about the problem actually. You're, you're getting ready for your day and then all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and you're like – Holy cow! I got to get into the office. I know how to do this now.
0: Yeah, and then, and this then a scramble for me that I always keep my phone near the shower, and I often have my phone in the shower writing notes, um, so I don't forget things because I have a very bad problem of. I'm like, that's a great idea. Don't forget it. And then five <laughs> minutes later, it's gone. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. Anyway, okay. So farming, and in, in, you you were in Canada. How far north in Canada? So if you were to start driving and
1: uh, through Montana and you hit the Canadian border, you have another eight hours of driving ahead of you before you get to where I grew up.
0: Wow. Okay. Okay. So that's that's deep deep in there. So during the summer was it was it you know did you have a summer or yeah, was it more the, of the a spring?
1: The summers really went from May to September. And the highs are between 80 to 85. And might hit oh, that's not eight. bad. Okay. Yeah. So the summers are... I, I actually like to say the summers are probably one of the best times of the year to go visit there. Yeah. Anywhere in North America, summers in Canada are fantastic.
0: Okay. So you learned how to problem solve. You said with three tools. What were those three tools? Well, I mean like a lot of the times it's a hammer, a screwdriver, and a crescent wrench. Were you having to ever fashion things together? Like No new... fashioning,
1: but you all of a sudden are using the screwdriver as a punch trying to un- un- like undo a-, a pin or something like that you're using tools how they're not meant to be used but at the end of the day you get Hey a tool can be used as any way you want it technology is a tool in order for it to what <laughs> so solve the problem that you're trying technology to solve technology is a tool any tech doesn't matter you can be technology agnostic it yeah. solves a problem agreed okay so farming where do we go so after that uh, first real job way not working for uh, my grandpa uh, working at a garbage dump and one little unknown fact about Riley, Alberta is it's known for its garbage dump. It has one of the largest garbage dumps in North America and I was in charge of cutting the grass at those garbage dumps or driving around the county and manning weigh-in stations. Uh, Why is the biggest dump in North America there? It's a great question, Uh, (laughs) I don't know why it started when I was a a kid, and uh, I mean honestly you hear, I don't know how true these are, but as a kid you hear stories that they would ship up garbage from the Northeast America.
0: It it seems (laughs) odd just because all of the fresh water in North America comes from Canada. I think Canada is the largest source of water in North America, if not one of the largest sources of fresh water in the world. And all of our rivers are fed from Canada, and you happen to be the store of the largest trash dumps. Yes,
1: it doesn't make sense. I will (laughs) say this, though. It is one of the more, back then anyways, it was one of the more technically advanced garbage dumps where they could, through cycling water through the trash, um, break down items a thousand times faster than they would naturally in in nature.
0: Okay, that's cool. Um,
1: So you're cutting grass, and you said you were working weigh-in stations. What does that mean? So the county that I lived in was very large, it four hours to drive from one end to the other. Uh, so the local farmers or townsfolk, uh, they would, instead of having to drive four hours to the garbage dump, they built transfer stations throughout the county that people go dump their trash there, and then you'd run a skid steer and load up a, a big trailer full of trash, and they would then that big trailer would be taken to the dump. So okay. you'd have to weigh in all these vehicles. and. I mean, quite honestly, it's it's funny looking back, but people get pissed off because you tell them that they can't throw their trash in there because it's a big pile of iron. And it's just, I'm sorry, you can't dump a big piece of pile of iron. In. So were people people limited per trip? Uh, yeah. You keep track of license plates. And, and if someone has... There wasn't really set limits, but you kind of red flag people if you, they keep coming
0: back. Okay. Okay. Um, so... You were you were weighing and cutting grass. I'm assuming you were cutting grass during the winter, or during the summer, and okay. then this doing is, weighing everywhere else. Yeah, this is just a summer job during... Okay, okay, got it. Got got it. it was just
1: really just an example of my first okay. job. Okay, so then what happened? So then I graduated high school, and I, literally the next day after I wrote my final exam, I moved to Edmonton, which is an hour away, but it is the big city. And part of that move is I, I started working for my uncle... Um, initially as a property manager for various properties that he that, that banks would foreclose on, and he owned a company that worked with the banks to maintain those properties, cut the grass, shovel the walks, and all that. But the main thing that that led into is I became a process server under the same company, which was a whole series of
0: learning how to manage personalities and situations. And so for our guests who don't know what a process server is, can you give us a... What, Crash Course 101. I'm the guy who knocks on the door. Heisenberg from Breaking Bad. I'm the
1: guy who knocks. And (laughs) uh, ask who you are. If you say say your name, I give you a piece of paper saying you've been served.
0: Uh, And most of the time, it was foreclosure papers or divorce papers. Okay, so you were serving lawsuits to people, and most of them were... Um, or a divorce, or what was the other one? Foreclosures. 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 So, so what people don't realize... Always bad news.
1: Yeah, always bad news. You're the bearer of bad news. And what people don't realize is 80% of the time the bank will work with you on this stuff. It's just that you've been avoiding the bank. So they have to escalate. And okay. And it, it really, like I, I, there are situations where people get pissed off at you, you're just the messenger. Um, it doesn't matter don't shoot the messenger nobody listens to that that's right they're they're upset in the moment yeah Um, a lot of the times I kind of went above and beyond and talked people through because there's a back page that the phone numbers they can call and stuff like that
0: Um, but at the end of the day so you were like Mr. Incredible like telling them about like you were you were giving them the bad news but then also like kind of giving them the process coaching them them. Yeah, yeah okay
1: Yeah, because at the end, like, the banks are going to want their money. They, they don't want to actually foreclose on you. They're going to want to be able to figure it out. Um, but the divorce papers can always get pretty iffy. Those, yeah. those are the ones that you just kind of hand and walk away.
0: So what's the best quick story of being a processor, right? I, there's got to be some... Uh, there was one
1: that I went with my uncle who had to serve this guy... And he was HIV positive. Oh. And he was known of biting his lip on purpose and spitting blood at people. Oh, jeez. And so the police officer, myself, and my uncle went. I stayed in the vehicle. Um, But, yeah, the guy walked out fully tattooed. And he uh, luckily did not bite his lip and spit blood at the police officer or my uncle. But that was probably the scariest one that I was kind of a part of. Um, another one that I think was pretty funny. That's terrifying. It it's is like weaponizing your body. Yeah. Another uh, one that was really funny is I was training a new person that was uh, going to become a processor, and one of my buddies, one of my hockey buddies actually, and uh, he had to go around back because the front door had a sign that says "please use the back door." So he went around back, and he was gone for about 15 seconds, and about. 15 seconds after he left and came back around the house, he was doing the Olympic speed walking <laughs> as an old woman was chasing him off the property with a rake. And, okay. and that was pretty funny because she was maybe 80 pounds and about a, uh, 90 years old. And you just want to get out of that situation. I, I'd, rather, I'd rather serve her than that other dude. <laughs> yes, yeah. That was a harmless, <laughs> but it was funny watching yeah, a, yeah. a big hockey player uh, fast walking away from a little... Hey, so real, so how long did you do one. the process server? gig I did it all the way through college. So, okay. the, here's the other great thing about it you only worked about an hour to two hours a day. Um, I played hockey th- throughout college,
0: and it was a great thing to do between studies, before practice, or before a game. So, what was the, the payment model on that? Like they just gave you a certain amount that you had to do yeah every day? And it, if it took you all day, it took you all day. If it took you 15 minutes, it took you 15 minutes? Yeah, so they would pay you
1: by attempt if you don't get the service. Uh, I think it was like $10 an attempt, and then $50 a service. Okay. Okay. And so you would you would get your stack of papers, you would look at all the addresses, plan your route, take 10 minutes, plan your route, and then go go on your day.
0: Okay. So did you do that all through college? All through college. Okay. And then even... Wh- so you loved it, clearly. I loved the money. <laughs> okay. The money was great between... The time value aspect of it.
1: Yeah. Making two grand a month working an hour. Two grand a month yeah. as a college student? Yeah. It was pretty good doing
0: that. What? But you worked every
1: day, like every, seven days a week. But it's still, and like you're in college, so some days you're hungover. That was a pretty
0: tough time to get out of, off the couch and. That's still a boatload of money. It is. It was really good. Okay. Um. All right. So end of college. What What was your major? Computer science. Okay. So in Canada,
1: it's a science. Uh, I don't know what it is down here, but it's in the science. I would faculty. assume it's a science if it's
0: a it's not engineering science is computer programming Uh, engineering funny story I got so I was a film major I think I've said that 15 times on this podcast but I was a film major at the University of Texas and when I went to go get my college ring someone told me I was like is it a Bachelor of Arts or a Bachelor of Science and the guy was so condescending he was like that's a Bachelor of Arts and I was like (laughs) okay settle down and I get my ring and then it was my mom or my dad that was like why does it say B.A.? And I was like, it was Bachelor of Arts. And they're like, that's a Bachelor of Science. And I was like, no, no it's not. And I looked it up and it's a Bachelor of Science and so I had to send my ring back to get it. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, so, so Radio Television Film at the University of Texas is a Bachelor of Science. So, that, that makes, that makes That sense. makes no, no sense. No, no sense. No, <laughs> um, Okay, so, did you, were you like, scoping for jobs out of college? Uh, like, what was your process of getting a job, and well, how did you land one? Yeah, I, I actually
1: just started applying. Um, the The web was just sort of starting with the whole public like announcing job openings. What what year did you graduate?
0: Two thousand two. Two thousand two. Okay, and you know, if I remember though, yeah, yeah, it was still super super early. So, so a fun thing to do for anybody that's that's listening. There's something. You Google it, it's called the Wayback Machine. And so whenever you want to kind of time something of like, you know, when someone says, oh, in 2004 this happened or whatever, you can just go to the Wayback Machine. I think it's like archive.org, but it's, you can look for the Wayback Machine and you can just type in your favorite website. So like I worked at, my first job was Dell and you can go to the Wayback Machine and type in Dell.com 2003 and see what it looked like. You know, or 1997, yeah. let's see what it looked like. And yeah. so, you know, as you listen to people talk about their past and what the web was like, you can actually kind of follow along and, and look at how far we've actually come. And even though it was the 2000s, like, it was still super, super, like, ancient. Yeah. Like, we weren't anywhere that we are now. And, and you know, if you probably like 20 years in the future, we're still toddlers in yeah. this experiment. But... Okay, so were you looking, so you were looking for the job via the internet. Was it like a yeah. Monster? Did Monster exist back then?
1: Uh, Monster, I don't remember.
0: Uh, at that time, I don't remember if Monster was
1: there, but I was going around to the bigger companies in Edmonton just looking for jobs. So uh, I was looking for system analysts, which is basically a fancy developer. Yeah. I don't know if they have system analyst roles anymore. But, um, Back then, they called them systems analysts, and I joined F EPCOR, which was the local power company. Um, basically, I think it was about two months after I graduated. And, and what made you choose that out of anything else? I hate to myth this, but they offered the most. Okay. I mean, that's fair. Right? Yeah. So, I uh, had a bunch of debt from college, and there's, it's a big company, uh, good reputation, and they offered the most money. So, Got it. Uh, and by the most money, I mean it was $36,000 a year. <laughs> Wait, what's the conversion rate between Canadian and
0: American? Back then, it was pretty close. Now, it's not that great. Okay. So, back then, it was like 90 cents. Okay. Uh, right now, it's like 75 cents. Because I think, I think my first job out of college, again, was Dell, and I was taking those calls. You call 1-800-Dell.com or whatever, and I was selling you that $500 computer, and I think I made thirty five or $40,000 that year. And I was one of the top 10 salesmen on the floor. Yeah. So, yeah, that, go us. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so you made big ball in dollars at Epcor. Yeah. What was your job there?
1: So as a systems analyst, you kind of have two roles. You're in charge of maintaining um, the, the business operations and the systems that support that, uh, as well as develop new tools for the business unit to be more effective, be more uh, proactive, uh, everything that to try to make their life easier. So the technology group always supported the business units. And one of the things that I did um, that I, I gained experience through just my prior work is just get to know the business side of things. Because you may be just sitting there writing code and hate your life and you don't understand what this code is actually going to be doing for people. But if you go and actually talk with the business units, talk with the people who are going to be running these applications, understand their real pains, understand how they could be more effective, you can then do your job much better. And you get recognized very quickly when you deliver products that
0: um, helps make the user's life easier. But, but what's the difference between doing that well and doing it poorly? You mentioned like listening to the people and what they needed. What tweaks do you make in your... Because I'm sure at a company like that, that's that big, you don't have free reign to do whatever you want to do. They have a set of tasks for you to do. So how do you add that creative flair in there? That's a good question. So about two weeks after I got hired by EPCOR, I had
1: my own little cubicle where I sat and listened to my headphones and didn't really communicate with anyone. And just across the hall, there was the business war room where all the operators sat and worked together every day. And once a spot opened up in that war room, I went and sat in there instead. So I just kind of set up a satellite spot, sat and listened and, and listened to their real pain on, because if you go and you formally send an email asking what, how can I make a product better, all of a sudden you're gonna get a political answer. You don't wanna step on people's toes. Business unit doesn't want to have to approve funding increases things like that whereas if you're sitting in the room and listening to the real pains people slamming their mice or cursing under <laughs> their breath yeah. and you kind of just look over and go hey what's going on like why, what's happening they're very they're just going to tell you right there and then because they're pissed off and they want to know how you can make their life easier okay so just by positioning myself in that room and getting to know the business side of people the business unit I should say um quickly elevated me in within that company Because then I was starting to get recognized not only by the operators, but by the managers and the executive on the business side, which then just automatically flowed into the technology leadership teams as well.
0: So because you took it upon yourself to talk to the end users directly instead of going through the company's existing processes, you were able to kind of jump through the ranks of that company much quicker.
1: Yeah. And I mean, like you still have to follow the processes. I I still am a firm believer that there's processes you can't over you can have too much processes, but you should have a ticket tracking system. You should have a release process. Yeah, you should have all those things that are important applications. But you're never gonna get the true uh definition of the problem by someone sitting there and having to type up a JIRA ticket or whatever ticket system you use, because people are lazy. They're not gonna type in the actual
0: problem that they're doing. So so let's break this down um because I know what JIRA is and you know anybody else technical out there knows what Jira is um, but like let's try to quickly just create an analogy for this for the average random company like what would be the equivalent of that for if you're in construction or you own a restaurant or um... actually, I actually have a good example okay, okay my, let's do that. my internship while I was in college
1: I actually uh, was hired to write a inventory system for a pipe yard. And pipe yards are very interesting because the people that are working out on a pipe yard are- What's a pipe yard? A pipe yard, okay, so let me back up. In Edmonton, it's an oil-based industry, much like Texas. Okay. Um, And during big projects, they need uh, to have a bunch of pipe for oil or gas to go through. But what they have to do is pre-buy it out of China so then it gets – so there's a middleman who goes and pre-buys all this pipe, then bids on projects, and then supplies the pipe for those projects. Okay. So you have an entire yard that's many acres big that has different sizes of pipes stacked on, on top of each other. Okay. And the people that unload and load that pipe, I would say, are minimum wage. There's nothing wrong with that, but they don't really care. They're just out there in either the extreme cold in Canada or the, the warm summers. They're counting pipe, they're measuring, and then they go and pot, put it in a big pot. Well, inventory systems that are bought off the shelf are fairly strict on you have an in, input of 25 pieces of pipe at 100 feet long. You can't ship out 26 pieces of pipe because you only have 25. So by, being, by knowing this pipe yard and knowing their, their business and, and working with the manager there, I was able to build an inventory system for them that was flexible to say, maybe that pipe was 105 feet long uh, coming in, but when they shipped it out, and remeasured, it was only 100 feet long, but the inventory and the financial systems need to be able to handle those discrepancies. So it needs to be able to handle human error. But you would have never gotten that if you did sit and watch the manager work these
0: inventory uh, books manually so, so, so before you developed this inventory system how they did this just on, on paper book and paper yeah and it was excruciating watching them try to manage
1: this inventory and again they don't want these discrepancies but it just happens
0: and so what, what prevents a company like that from doing building that tool like I, I know that you built it for them but like wh- wh- why were you there why didn't they do it you know, a year prior, how did you, how did you become the catalyst to do this for these people? So I I did work there a little
1: bit, um, in my, while I was process serving, I'd also work out there a little bit, uh, through a family friend and I was the one that was doing this paperwork. Um, so I understood the manual process that was going on. And I understood that for whatever reason, when they counted the pipe coming in, then they went and counted it out the pile. It was a different count. And I think that the main thing with this is is when I went as an internship, I had to find it in my final year of college. I went back out to the manager and said, Hey, I think I can build you a system. You're gonna pay nothing for it because this is an internship. Like I think he paid five thousand dollars for a, an entire inventory product. Okay. Which he was getting quotes from software services for like a hundred grand. So they were
0: looking. Yes, they were looking. Were, just, were they actively looking or were people trying to sell into them? Both. Okay. Both. Yeah. And so people were quoting A hundred, a hundred grand. Yeah. Which nobody's going to spend. That's outrageous. Yeah. Um, so, so you were just a convenient, you were there, you quoted them a $5,000. He knew that I knew the business. Okay. So he didn't, so he knew that he didn't have to spend a lot of time with explaining it and doing all that. You, okay. That's awesome. So, and, and the reason I'm kind of harping on this is because I'm, I'm a huge believer in the technology and the tool. Um, You know, like, people talk about startups and tech all the time, or tech startups, but, you know, every, every small business and every startup is a tech startup because everything is tech. You know, if pen and paper are tech, they're old tech. Yeah. Um, But, you know, everything is tech and everything's a tool. So, like, you gotta have better tools than the other guy. And so, it sounds like they just got lucky... With having you there at the time, so having to migrate from pen and paper to an actual full blown system, and how long do you like? Do you keep up with them? Like how? Yeah. Do you like? How long did they use that system? They're still using it. Today. They're still using the system. Yeah. How many years ago is this? This was in 2001 or 2000. So basically, 18 years they've been using the system that a college student put together. And how long did it take you to do that? Uh, just a summer. Okay. So That's it was just perfect. a Microsoft Access with Microsoft Access forms.
1: As a UI and accesses the database, uh, but the design was flexible enough to handle their unique process. do you ever have to support them still no no so <laughs> it, well, it's funny the first couple of years I actually did have to go back a little bit and and tweak a few things, but I told him that i you can't afford me anymore jokingly yeah, and yeah. he yeah he
0: he doesn't need it. it he says it's rock solid he hasn't had any that's problem. awesome that's awesome, okay so. Um Epcor, you started helping everybody kind of randomly because you positioned yourself. You found a, a, uh, a new place to work. Um, yeah. And, and like, like what's really interesting with that
1: whole thing too is as soon as you prove yourself after a couple of years that you can deliver, you're delivering products that people can trust and utilize – you, you really start getting included in conversations about strategy and long-term plans so that you really can position these products to fit not only on the immediate problem, but you also have an eye on the long-term plan. So if you know that business, for example, is looking to uh, revamp their business model down the road, you can build that into your design of your products to be flexible enough To solve the short-term problem, but also be able to be utilized down the road. I
0: I think it's so important to, you know, a lot of public companies, you know, they get judged on the very, very Mm short-term, and, you know, the the startups want to have the super long-term vision, but you really got to have kind of your eye, your left eye on the short-term and your right eye on the long-term and figure out and reprioritize and always kind of be able to be flexible and never create anything that's just you know, a short-term solution that is just going to kind of be a dead end for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. Like the analogy I use all the time with uh, my team now is if you have a boat with a bunch of holes in it, you only have so many fingers and toes to plug those holes before <laughs> that boat keeps getting holes and it sinks. Yeah. You got to fix the problem. You got to know where that boat's going um, and because you, you'll never succeed long term otherwise.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so how long were you with that port? Solid six or seven years. Later. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was kind of one of the longest, if not the longest job uh, other than what now. Genscape is approaching it now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So they're for six, seven years. And I imagine in a company like that, you learn a lot of, um, you know, common theme uh, talking to people is that the great thing to learn from a corporation. You know, again, everybody likes to kind of hate on corporations. They're the They're the devil. They're the soul suckers, whatever. But... Um, they're big companies for a reason. Yeah, they they run and they make money, and you know they develop processes. And you know it might not be perfect, and it might not be what you want, but they they seem to work, and they, they handle a lot of people and a lot of customers and a lot of different projects and a lot of just a lot of moving parts. So like, what other than you know what kind of seems obvious? Like, what are the big things that you learned from working at a big corporation like that? I would
1: say politics and etiquette.
0: Okay. So you know how to work a meeting.
1: You know how to host a meeting. You know how to send an email professionally. Yeah. You know how to politically position things in pitch meetings. So you're not telling people what the solution is. You position it so they come to the solution themselves that you want them to come to. Yeah.
0: Um, so kind of like teasing a uh, teasing a solution, but letting them kind of come up with it on yeah. their own. Yeah. But like giving them the... The, the entire picture. And and you have faith that the people you're working with are going to come to the same solution that uh, you feel is the right solution. Yeah. I think it's funny you say email etiquette. So my my old boss, Bill Jack Russo, um, Tony's husband from the first episode, he was my boss and and we used to get in, like, we were very passionate we used to get in, like, yelling matches uh, to the point where people would have clients come in the building and they'd say, like, can you maybe fight in Bill's office today, please? (laughs) Um, And and I was his direct subordinate so the fact that he let me get away with that was amazing but, um, we both got very heated very quickly and then, like, you know, calmed down. But we have to kind of teach ourselves not to send that email. Yeah. You know, you, like, read the email and you take it the wrong way, whether you're supposed to take it the wrong way or not. But you you very immediately have a reaction to it. and You want to send that email. Yeah. And we have little post-it notes on our monitor that just says, like, send that email tomorrow. Yeah. And you kind of have to learn that because... You know, you work with a bunch of different people that have a lot of different uh, kind of emotional spectrums and capabilities to handle different uh, people's personalities, and so you kind of really have to narrow your, uh, you know, what you say and how you say it. Tone and context is really hard to convey across an email, Mm -hmm. so you may be completely misreading what that person is saying. That's really interesting you say that because whenever people tell stories about like a text or an email... That they get. Mm-hmm. They always put their their spin and their tone and their inflection on it. They're yeah. like, he said this, and then she said blah blah blah. And it's like, did did like like you just read that? Yeah. Like, did they actually like what what accents on the letters conveyed that tone? Like, yeah. So so it's almost I, I've been trying recently when I read a, a message that I get a bad a bad vibe from, I try to reread that message in like a monotone, completely emotionless computer voice. Siri, <laughs> reread this text message. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because t- tone and inflection can vary, can be taken so poorly, so easily. Yeah. Um, you know, and and especially like in the technology field where you have so many different cultures yeah.
1: now working together uh, and where sometimes English is not the first language the
0: email comes across as maybe rude yeah. or confusing or curt just yeah you know, short yeah and, and someone else takes that shortness as an, an insult because they're not being friendly and warm. Yeah. yeah yeah so it's it's uh I think like to circle all the way back to your original question I think
1: that's outside of like the technology and learning how to build things um that's probably the biggest thing I took away from it.
0: Time for a sponsored message. Get your llc from betterlegal.com the state filing ein filing and operating agreement for one price as fast as your state will allow also offering registered agent service and ongoing state compliance let better legal handle the formalities so you can handle the actual business okay so why did you leave
1: Epcor? because edmonton gets extremely cold in the winter <laughs> okay uh, it, it gets to, but you're a wildling, so you should be used to it, yeah. And you are until you, you go to the warm south. <laughs> uh, so were you traveling at this point in time? Like, yeah. did you kind of uh, I went to, to Vegas fe- on my 21st birthday. Uh, when was your first kind of time
0: out of Canada? Oh, I mean, back when I was a kid, okay. Like, okay, we we so up you were California, okay. So you were yeah. well traveled, got yeah. it. Um, so your 21st birthday, you went to Vegas, yeah. And it's just, how did you get there? Yes.
1: Sadly, this is, uh, my birthday, September 14th, uh, my birthday, 21st birthday was in 2001. Okay. So something happened on 9-11, 2001. Oh, so I actually had to wait a month until the plane started flying again until I got to go. But yeah, that's. Oh my gosh. I remember waking up going to getting ready for work and turning on the tv because my roommates were like you need to turn on the tv yeah same
0: thing same thing happened to me and yeah you know like i said i went to the university of texas and the president's daughter was a a student there jenna bush was going there at the time she was a year younger than me and we were terrified that we were a target because we were the largest university in the country and the president's daughter was there i mean that was a stupid thing to think about i guess but like well, everybody everybody stayed home. Guard that yeah, 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 yeah. Like, there, nothing had happened like that before, right. since Pearl Harbor, which wasn't really in the continental U.S., you know, right. it was, like, way out in the ocean. The news wasn't as quick back right. then. Right, 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 So, okay, so you drove. Well, we, we, don't, we flew to
1: Vegas. You flew to Vegas. But, like, that was kind of the start of me wanting to travel a lot more. Okay. And as I started traveling, I started experiencing new cultures, uh... I, I started traveling the world a little bit. I went to Australia to visit my sister while well, she went to school there.
0: Okay, uh, Canadians and Australians. Right? I imagine those those two cultures that, get along that very well. British
1: Commonwealth <laughs> you
0: just stick together. <laughs> okay. uh,
1: and then... Uh, Do you all drink tea in Canada or is it coffee? It's coffee. It's coffee. Yeah, yeah. It's, we, so we, you're, we, you're one of us. We, uh, we didn't go to war. We just stopped drinking tea. One of us. Yeah. One of us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So then uh, it, Edmonton gets to there's a solid two weeks a year where it's minus 40 degrees out as it's high. Okay. And it's just exhausting after a while. Shoveling your walks, starting your car, walking in really cold weather, yeah. only having summer four months of the year. Had a great group of friends. I still have a great group of friends there. All my family's still there. I, we, my wife and I, we go back quite a bit um, and we enjoy it. We try to go in the summer more than winter, but uh, it's, it's still a great place to be. It's just, I needed a life change. Yeah. And I knew if I stayed at EPCOR any longer, I was climbing that proverbial corporate ladder and I was going to get into a position that it just didn't make sense for me to leave. So I had to make the move at 26 years old. Okay. And I just had
0: to get out of there. And where'd you go? I got recruited to come and work at ERCOT here in Austin, Texas. So you just like the acronym companies with, that start with E? Yeah. And I basically yeah. stuck with that. Yeah. So <laughs> EPCOR, yeah. ERCOT, Energetics. Okay. <laughs> Great. Um, what did ERCOT do? It sounds like EPCOT.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I still sometimes type ERCOT when I'm talking about Genscape in emails, and because it's just it one line on the R that
0: changes from ERCOT to
1: EPCOT. Yeah, it, it took a little bit to go from EPCOR to ERCOT. Um, no, they they were uh, starting probably one of the largest software builds in the United States. Um, ERCOT is the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. They're in charge of the reliability of the power grid as well as the financial market of the power grid so what do you what do you mean that they were starting a large so very high uh very at a macro scale um prices were produced for the the price of power was at a zonal level which there was i think five zones Mm -hmm. so you could be living in college station and you're in the same zone as houston Houston's demand is going through the roof the price of power is going way up but you're in college station you're a small little town why should you have to be
0: paying for this high price of power so what so, did so back then everybody in the state was paying the same or everybody on the same zones. grid in the same in zone in the same grid okay zone yeah. zone. so everybody in the same zone was paying the same price the wholesale and price and so you, it, it sucked if you lived in rural outside of a major city yeah during August I guess yeah Okay, So what they did
1: is they're going from five zones uh, every, I think, five, 15 seconds pricing to uh, 9,000 pricing nodes wow. every 15 seconds. So it was a, it was a very large uh, increase in the amount of data required. Um, the reliability side of things was improved r- drastically. The foundation of data inputs into the system was, was created much more complex inputs. Um, it, it went from a, an initially a government-approved $75 million project to a $600 million project by the end. And this <laughs> classic, is just Classic, classic government. And you,
0: when you say government, you're talking about the state of Texas. Yeah, the, okay. the Public Utility Commission. Okay. okay. Um, what provoked doing that? The, the,
1: the basically... Is it like a law or...? There's, through nodal pricing, going to those 9,000 nodes, you entice new development of generation. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these. It's not the only reason, but one of the main reasons is the nodal pricing, the market, and the ability to build all these wind farms. It, not a lot of people. What know is this. A nodal pricing? N O D A L. Yes, that's the nine thousand nodes. Okay. That, that now get a price throughout the state of Texas. So, so the it. state of Texas is an island, on from a power grid perspective. They're not okay. interconnected to any part of the the states or Mexico.
0: So so. Th- We don't get power from any other state or any other country. No, there's three major grids
1: in the United States. There's the east, uh, which is all the way from the north down to Florida to the Rockies, and then not Texas, and then there's the west, which is west of the Rockies. There's no interconnection east and west, and there's no interconnections between the very
0: small D.C. ties, but they're, they're just... But we export power, yeah? No. All of the power made in Texas stays in Texas. Yeah. And Texas doesn't take power from anybody else. No. Is any other state like that? No. Texas is the only one. Why is that?
1: It's just the way that it was set up. I don't, I don't know the history. Because be we're just stubborn people. It's just Texans being Texans. <laughs> okay. okay. You love it that way, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it makes a very unique problem because you have to be self-contained. Yeah. Whereas the eastern, interco- eastern grid, you, you
0: like, you're going from Florida to New England. So, okay, let's just play fun hypothetical games real quick. If all of Texas's power sources just stopped, yeah. are you saying that we would be incapable of importing power if we absolutely had to if there was a natural disaster? Yeah, there's no not a large enough interconnects to connect to the other regions. Okay, but you've got these 9,000 nodes. Do we have enough people with, like, solar and wind and where it was like... We're we're decentralized enough to where nothing would really happen unless it was like a massive like meteor or something that took out a lot of stuff
1: not to put the scare or BMP or something yeah well not to put the scare on anyone this year is the slimmest of reserves ERCOT has ever had in the history of ERCOT that's great I glad to ask that question yeah so it's they're expecting some wild
0: prices this summer. The, the demand is going to be higher. And are you talking about 2008 being the slimmest? No, this, like this year. This year is the slimmest. It's it's and we are in June going into Ju- July, July and August. And yeah. August is probably the biggest power pull of all. That is
1: correct, yeah. Okay. So we're going to see some we we roundup prices. I mean, they, they're hoping not. They, okay. There was some concerns last year in the summer. Uh, but we're even slimmer reserves this year. Okay. And what do you mean by reserve? So you have to make sure that you have the ability to ramp up generators to meet unexpected
0: demand is the battery or i'm sorry is the is the power stored anywhere is it all power that's being generated at the time at the time so batteries are are still an emerging technology that is not necessarily is market moving yet or what what do you think about the Tesla like power packs like what they did in I think Puerto Rico and like Australia? I think it's interesting
1: it doesn't it doesn't solve a mass reliability issue, though.
0: But didn't Australia have massive brownouts that that this that the Tesla and, and just so people know what I'm talking about, uh, Tesla Tesla.com. They don't only make cars; they are the largest producer. Correct me where I'm wrong. They're the largest producer of batteries, I think, in the world, and they create essentially think about just stacking a bunch of laptops on top of each other but without the computers involved, just the batteries, the laptop batteries on top of each other into kind of a, like a, a locker of sorts. And then they've got a hundred or a thousand lockers of batteries and they store all the data in there. So like when you're creating power at night and you're not drawing from it, the power can go into the battery into a huge massive battery, you know, pack. Just like you'd have like a, You know, like if for your phone, you've got a battery um, external drive and you store that up and, you know, your battery's out by 2 p.m. And then you've got to jack into the battery pack. It's essentially like that. So when you're at a low time, like nighttime or like on a rainy day where it's only 80 degrees out, you're generating power and then you're storing that power into this massive battery pack. So then all of a sudden you have the next day that's 105, 110 degrees and you're just sucking power like crazy. The the, the, peak, the, the, the generators that are generating only a certain amount of power can actually pull from the, the reserves. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying that 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 technology is not... Not there yet. Okay. To, for, to solve a reliability issue.
1: So one of the, the crazy things about Texas is it has the highest per capita... Uh, wind generation in the, in the United States, so it's almost twenty gigawatts of power can be produced by wind twenty gigawatts twenty gigawatts twenty gigawatts <laughs> and uh, so if you ever drive over West Texas you understand that because it's just nothing but wind wind farms um, but the decommissioning of coal plants has been a major contributor to that uh, but what has helped has, is, has that
0: happened a lot yeah. like I, I I'm not you know, I, I don't read the news that much, but I just keep hearing coal. There's yeah. clean coal, and I don't know what clean coal is versus non-clean coal, but it's but, no such thing. <laughs> okay, so where are these? So, did we have coal plants in Texas? Yeah, yeah there's still coal plants. Uh, where no, are they located? In Texas? I, I, I mean, there's a lot of them. It's okay, complex question. And what do you mean they're decommissioning? Like, is that like a state? A state. ...thing where they're like, we're going to go off of coal, or is that just no, like they're not... economically profitable, not profitable. Not profitable. Anymore. Natural gas is so cheap, it's just making coal not... Is natural gas a better... It is a cleaner source. It's cleaner it source. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it's interesting that it's like you don't even have to make the legislation to say like we're not... We're going off of coal because you just have a better, cleaner source that's cheaper. The economics are taking care of it. Okay.
1: But like nuclear is a big deal in... in Texas, so there's the nuclear power plants, and, and then they're kind of like your rock, right? Like, they mm-hmm. hum at a certain megawatts, they don't go up, they don't go down, so they, they don't really help the reserve issue, they just create a base that you can build on. It's just a good foundation of power. Right? Yeah. Okay. Whereas the natural gas, you can ramp them up or ramp them down to meet that demand, and they, they kind of fill your reserve. But what, okay, so then what about wind power? Because if we don't... Wind, wind power is always... Always 100% inject on the grid. They they bid into the market in negative prices a lot of the times. What does that mean?
0: So What's they'll they'll pay,
1: pay the market to take their power, in some cases.
0: That seems totally dumb.
1: Well, me. they get tax credits and oh, okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're, the business model still works. <laughs> it's like, well, why are
0: but, you doing this? But they really because
1: economically, ERCOT will dispatch various units and. The wind farms don't want to be in position to not be able to dispatch onto the grid. But but if there aren't batteries, right? so you're saying... Batteries will change the, that a little bit. What if
0: it's not a windy day?
1: But then then the coal and the natural gas, those units have to make up the difference.
0: But, okay, so there's natural gas, there's coal, yeah. there's nuclear, and there's wind, and probably solar, which is yeah. very minute. That's actually new, and it's, it's growing quite a bit in Texas. But, like, you've got five different, maybe more, five different sources of energy Mm -hmm. and we just magically all of them magically kind of make just the right amount of energy because we're not storing any of it that's the complexity of the software that ERCOT had to build
1: was to make sure that the grid is maintained and the economically and reliability dispatch all these various units throughout the state to ensure the grid hums at 60 hertz
0: that's the frequency of power that has to be maintained is are there studies oh okay okay so it's just the it's just okay again going back to the stock market that's what it is. It's the market demand. Like no one's having to tell you or tell these people to make this much. It's it's just running itself. Yeah, yeah. That's it has to run itself. Fascinating. And so, like, let's say that uh, something
1: it's an extra hot day and there's no wind in the west. Well, ERCOT is going to have to ramp up units around Houston, for example, to to manage all the air conditioning units and Houston demand increasing. So that price of power is going to be more
0: expensive. And so, do they get? Are they notified? Are those are those places the sources of power notified that they're going to get paid more because there's a demand? Yeah. So they, and that's why they do it. It's almost like surge pricing if you're an Uber driver. Exactly. That's exactly it. And, and like
1: ERCOT, for example, has an entire control room for the state of Texas. They have the entire transmission grid. They have all the units. They know how much power is going across all the power lines. They have the weather channel up. They have all this information up. And operators there are informing the operators at the power plants that they need to start ramping up or ramping down based on what's happening on the grid. Okay, it's um, it, a lot of it is controlled electronically, but there are human points that be like, no, no, uh, that that plant's more reliable. We need to ramp
0: up that one. Okay, so we went off on a tangent, which is completely my fault, but that's just a super complex thing that I think we, we could did, sit here for hours. I think I think I think it required a little bit. Of a breakdown because it's yeah. not a normal business. It's it's something that just has so many moving parts that you know. Hopefully, everybody that's still with us <laughs> and hasn't fallen asleep is is like a little bit more uh, uh, knowledgeable about you know why we're getting to where we're going. Yeah. Um, so ERCOT is decides they're going to do this huge this code base. Yeah, um, vendors.
1: There's, there's about 10 different vendors brought in building pieces of the software. Consultants are brought in from around the world. You needed a power industry background plus computer programming background. Uh, you needed a certain amount of experience. Um, and they brought, they literally brought in consultants from all around the world. I, I managed a team at ERCOT when I came down. What year is
0: this? This was 2007. Okay. and So Texas only in the last 12 years got on this non-five zone system? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: And Nodal is relatively new in the grand
1: scheme of things. Uh, Nodal pricing, that is. Um, There's Nodal pricing in in
0: the other regions as well. Uh, Texas is the most recent addition. But I think think my point is that, you know, you mentioned living in College Station because, you know, rent in College Station is probably... A fraction of what living in downtown Houston costs, right? Yeah. But yet they're paying the same amount for energy, and I'm sure the people that live the in College Station, price. yeah, yeah. The wholesale price. And so I'm sure the people in College Station are like, "Well, this doesn't make sense. How come someone hasn't solved it in 2007?" You're like, "Well, it's the 21st century. Like, how come someone hasn't solved this yet?" Yeah. And so my 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 ultimate point that I'm trying to get to is that there's always new stuff. Like you you, you think every you know you look at things like uber and spacex and tesla and and like the new the newest phones that we have from you know google and and apple and what facebook's building and it's like all this super complex stuff is there but then there's all this legacy stuff that that is just ripe for the picking that you know maybe not the the energy grid Mm -hmm. per se but there's just so much stuff that we've built up up on top of that still has a lot, a long way to go and there's just still so much opportunity in almost every aspect of our society. So, And I, and I mean, I, I like to always say, um,
1: anything can be solved with budget and schedule. <laughs> and I mean, we literally put a man on the moon with budget and schedule, right? So th- when you talk about these legacy systems that are out there and, and opportunities and as people... Very like, good timing on the
0: 50-year anniversary, roughly. Yeah,
1: uh, it's coming yeah, up, isn't yeah. it? Uh, but, like, when, you're, when you are when you're think about opportunities in your own career, you may not want to go and work for a brand new technology company that's trying to be leading edge. And there, there's opportunities out there to make a real difference and make decent, really good money, um, making a difference, replacing these legacy systems and and bringing these older companies or
0: older government agencies into the 21st century. Yeah. Even if it's just a pipe yard that's on pen and paper. That's right. And making them... More, you know, more efficient, more profitable. So that's right. Um, how long did like the F core thing, like from the time that they decided they were going to do it to the time that they actually started building it to the time that they actually launched, like maybe the first phase of it? Because I'm sure that didn't just get put together like, boom,
1: yeah. it's done. It, the project started, I think, in 2001. Okay. Started planning.
0: So in, in 2007, six years later, they were like ready to start full bore building code. Yeah, code testing. Uh, they, they had picked their database, yep.
1: their software stack. The vendors, like there's a big proposal, RFPs out there for
0: years. What's an RFP? Uh, request for request proposal. Request for a proposal, okay. Yeah. Um, so like AB&B. Got to watch those TLAs, those three-letter acronyms. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but like monster companies,
1: right? Siemens, AB&B, um, large industrial software companies were all bidding on various aspects of this project. Uh, so they were developing software. We were developing pieces to put those software, the vendor's software together. Uh, the project was supposed to be done in two thousand and eight. It didn't get delivered until December twenty ten. That's not too bad. It's not too bad, but you could think about it, it's a nine year software project. Yeah, from inception to delivery.
0: Yeah, but how many people live in the state of Texas? That that, I mean, it, it was that, and that's almost like a mega mega project. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just ERCOT too, right? Because, because, because also, all of these different sources of power, they're not on the same software platforms, right? That's right. Like so they, they all have had to, to change as well. So the, the, the sources were having to change or they were having to change their outputs? They would have to change their outputs and inputs, right? Because they're interacting with ERCOT software. So, so for the listeners, again, um, to try to break this down in a non-technical fashion, you know, when you talk about inputs and outputs, like you know, think about trying to upload uh, some data to an app. Um, You know, you might have to put in a CSV or an Excel document. And it's like, okay, well, what does this look like? And so everybody that has software for their specific function has the data stored in their own way that makes sense for them. So for a wind farm, it might make sense in a certain way. For a nuclear power plant, it might make sense in a different way. And so... But they both are producing power, which is what is the ultimate main generalized function of this. So, you know, if they're both producing power, how do you put the output from the nuclear power plant and the output of the wind farm the solar farm and, and all of that to one type of data format so the software that they're, this mega software project they're developing can read it all as if it's the same. So it's all, it's almost like, uh, you know, if you just think about PVC pipes, it's like one guy's got you know a five inch you know diameter pvc another guy's got a two inch another guy's got a one inch it's like they've all got to converge at some point and so you've got to you know make the smaller funnel into where they all can can go into one one source that everybody agrees on so that, that you know the fact that getting that many people probably to agree on a data format was probably its own its own political <laughs> yeah <laughs> um you know, again, almost like uh, think about in elementary school when when you were having to like format your a paper, like you have to put your name in the left hand side and the date in the top right, and then the title here. And if you did it wrong, you had to redo it. it yeah. Just just like formatting. Yeah. But yeah, on a much, much bigger, more complex scale. High frequency. Yeah. Yeah. So.
1: So yeah, I was I was at ERCOT. Um, I was in charge of. Basically, all this information is managed within, or all this information is built upon this uh, file that I'm trying to remember what the non-acronym name is, but I can't remember.
0: <laughs> so. What is the <laughs> acronym name?
1: It's CIM, CIM, And We can just com- make it up. Oh, common Interface Model. That's what it's called. Common to be. Interface Model. And it, what it does is it, it actually has the physical connectivity of every single piece of electrical transmission equipment in the state of Texas. What within Dubai. the hell does that mean? So, when you're driving down the highway and you see that power line, that power line's connected to a transformer, that power line's connected to all sorts of things. Across the entire state of Texas, there's thousands of power lines, there's thousands of transformers, there's, th- there's thousands of substations. All of that connectivity of all that physical equipment is all stored within this one file called the SIM file. And... With all within ERCOT, that is the foundation for all of these vendor software to either run reliability or the markets, because um, they need to know how power is flowing on the grid. What happens when the software becomes self-aware? <laughs> they manage the grid much better than we can probably. Oh, so it's silver yeah. lining. Great. Yeah, uh, but it's a very complex file, and uh, not to get too technical, but it's multiple people. That are external to ERCOT have tried to digest this file and have been unsuccessful. Firms and people. And I was lucky enough to be working within ERCOT, working on this publicly available file that ERCOT makes available, and I understand it. And I had a light bulb moment at the end of my project at ERCOT that, wow, this information is made available, this information is highly valuable, I think I could build something on this. And then that's when I moved into my startup.
0: Energetics. Energetics. So you're telling me that the entire, your entire startup was based on the fact that you knew you had access to this publicly available file and it was such a convolutedly formatted file that you were the only person that could un- package it.
1: Yes. That, or you go and spend $10 million for a Siemens product to unpackage it.
0: But what, so like, I know you're a smart guy, but I don't want to give you too much credit. <laughs> what, like, what, what did you see in it that other people didn't? Uh, I got access to the file while working at
1: ERCOT and just learned, spent time learning it. it so just, just like, time, just, just there's nothing familiarity com- with it. Yeah, familiarity. That's it. it nothing complex. Nothing uh, unique from a perspective of you must understand. How long did you work for
0: Uh Four years. And when did this but, SIM file get like but, created, or when did the it was always started? there? I got
1: assigned to making sure that that SIM file is consumable and transferable to all the vendor software about a year into
0: that. So it was your intimate working with the file in a day in, day out for, how, again, how long? Three years. Three For a three-year project that you've always had access to this file. So so again, yeah, it could just be, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, you know, not solving a problem as soon as you identify it, but instead, you know, just letting your brain do the background processing. Your brain essentially had three years of background processing of having to communicate why this file mattered, or how to explain it to people, in probably numerous types of times and different scenarios. Yeah, and so you just had a much deeper understanding of this file yeah. than anybody else did. And, and and I don't know how much this will resonate with people, but
1: it's a ten gigabyte XML document. So it is a why well, XML and not JSON? Well, it was JSON wasn't really relevant back okay <laughs> I mean it was around but it wasn't XML it was still there
0: I mean XML is really just kind of glorified HTML as well. yeah
1: well I mean XML is around Ooh. first was
0: it yeah I'm pretty sure okay don't quote me on that I probably mean, wrong we're not going to go into that in this yeah. episode uh, <laughs> um, but that's I mean you could say XML and JSON could be easily same thing convertible yeah same thing um, okay so you you had this file it, it was, you said it was a 10-gigabyte... XML document. But you couldn't open it on a, a computer. Of, it would shut time? down your computer. What period of time? Like, what, like it's a, it's a time-slice piece of data. So they put... But produce is, it it f- like a, is it like a, a, a month, year's worth of no, data? No, it's, it's, it's a, in a single moment what the grid looks like. And it's whoa, whoa, whoa. State. So like a second or a millisecond or a hundred milliseconds? Just just think of it as a snapshot in, of, a, of a moment. And how many snapshots were taken in the, like a second? They publish it once a week. But how... Okay, so they publish it once a week. If you think about many, it, like tra- transmission lines don't really move. They don't get a lot of changes. You're, saying, you're saying there was one XML file every week? Yes. So they, but they, when you say it's a snapshot... Is it a snapshot on a Monday or is a snapshot on a Thursday? Or was it um, all of them? There was a schedule that I actually was the author of originally, mm-hmm.
1: the publication schedule. Uh it'd get published sometime between midnight and
0: one AM, Tuesday through Thursdays every week, or the first of the month, wherever day that was. But week, the Okay, so it was a snapshot of what the grid was like in that when moment. in the moment, but it was only captured once a week. Yeah. What happened every other day of the week? You manage it through another piece of information. No, you you manage
1: it through what's called outages. So if you, let's say you're building a transmission line, they published a SIM file on the Wednesday, your line doesn't go active until Friday, you just build in a temporary outage from Wednesday to Friday. So it's in the SIM file, but it's on quote-unquote outage.
0: So they publish these 10 gigabyte XML files once a week, but in reality, it was not super detailed information over a period of time. But you had the ability, because you were so familiar with the document, to kind of really understand what the snapshot actually meant over the course of the week. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, when we're talking about... Think of it as a blueprint. blueprint but when we're talking about buying and selling energy by the second... Yeah. And you're only working off of a document that you just provided to you once a week. How how do you do that? So, you use that as your foundation of think of
1: it don't think of it so as a so just a baseline. You think of it as a blueprint of a pipe system of a building. Cuz okay. people can think about water pipes a lot easier than they can think about power. And it's a blueprint that they publish to say, "All right, on this Tuesday, this is the pipe system as of built in this moment mm-hmm. of that building." They may be making upgrades to the pipe system, but those, those pipe systems aren't available yet, They're not available till the next week when they publish the next file, and now that pipe, that new pipe is in the pipe system of the blueprint. So then when you're trying to figure out the flow of water throughout the building, um, you can now figure out the new flow of water based on the new topology. There's a lot of other moving parts to determine how that water flows, but the, the fundamental foundation of the, the pipe system is fairly static from one week to the next,
0: through or throughout the week. Okay, so you are familiar with this file, and you just decided to start a company. Yeah. So,
1: I the project manager of this large software product. Uh, him and I, our contracts were ended once the product went live, and he wanted to. He invited me to lunch, and he wanted to hire me for his consulting company. And at that lunch, we were talking and I basically flipped the conversation into we need to start a company to harvest this information and make it available to the market participants, the traders, uh, asset owners, cities, anyone who's involved in the power industry needs to be able to
0: get the value of this. We'll give you the idea to not be a a consultant or an employee anymore and move into this. I want to create something to sell to others.
1: That's a good question. I...
0: I knew that there was no one else that knew how
1: to use that file. So, so it's kind of a greed, selfish thing. Yeah, greed, selfish. Not that well, there's anything wrong but, with that. But there is... Greed is good. It the was agreed really also good. that I did not want to leave Austin, Texas and my work visa would expire once my contract was up. And the other shoe drops. And the other shoe drops. So by not only starting... Ensuring that I'd be gainfully employed as in a startup um, and and lawfully be able to work in this country using getting a work visa um i could just still do that as a consultant but i was kind of truthfully out i'm not really built for the consultant life living from one contract to the next not knowing if you're going to get renewed it's kind of stressful especially when you're here you did as, it for a decade right i didn't i did it for four years at ERCO. Okay, okay Uh course i was a consultant i mean got I was it. A, an employee got it but it, it's it's double layered for me because as soon as my contract's up, I have, I think it's a month. I forget what the rule is now. I have a green card now. But um, you have a month or else you got to go back to Canada. Okay. And I just, there was just too much stress with both not having, with the opportunity or the possibility of not having my contract renewed plus being a Canadian living in the States lawfully, uh, I would leave if my visa would obviously expire. So I didn't want to have to face that situation.
0: Okay. Um, so you created this company, and overnight success. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, it,
1: uh, it was interesting. The first couple days, I mean, I spent the first Christmas coding. Uh, I went back to Canada uh, for Christmas, coded throughout the holidays, uh, building the system, the database to manage this information, load all this SIM file, and then extracting an actionable data for customers, what I perceived as actionable data. And coming back to Texas... My now business partner had a bunch of meetings lined up and we were starting to get traction early and people were really interested in these information that we could provide to them. And it got to a point where I was working out of the office or the business center of my apartment complex. I'm not going to host a meeting at a business center, at an apartment complex, yeah. a big company, right? Yeah. So I reached out to a fellow hockey player who was a CEO of Venture Accelerator. Uh that he's not there anymore, but he was a the CEO then. Uh, called Thinktive, and I asked if he had any spare space so that I could come and just squat at. And he said, absolutely, uh, the hockey group in town, very tight-knit group, uh, we look out for each other, and, and uh, he brought me in and set me up and let me, let me get that feeling of going to the office each day, which I, is fairly important to me. Okay. And yeah, I started having calls, having meetings, and eventually I asked um, this same CEO to sit in a meeting with me and I just wanted to get his feedback on what how he thought it went and we went through the hour-long conversation the presentation shut the phone off he turned to me and said you do, you better or how did he put it exactly something along the lines of uh you better be fucking excited he's like you got something here do you even know what we do here and he's referring to... Wow. That they were, they were a venture, venture seller. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, no, tell me more. So before we knew it, uh, Angel Investors, uh, they worked on the design of the company. They actually, and this is because you gave a presentation to a large company? Uh, yeah, he just listened in on this one pitch, and he, okay. he was sold at that moment. And just based on their responses during the call, um, he started identifying the kind of the moat of the business and the technology that we were starting to build. Um, What's the moat of a business? The moat of a business is the, it can be as simple as first to market. So you, Uber is a good example of that. They're first to market on rideshare. It's not that their technology is anything scary or fantastic, I mean, it is pretty special, but uh, there's other companies out there that do the same thing, that, but they're the first to market. Your moat is your ability to protect your business, protect, be, uh, the ability to protect your business from other competitors coming in and taking wallet share of your customers. Got it. Okay. So our moat was good uh, and we started getting angel investors. They they actually came up with, we picked the name, but we, they gave us a bunch of options of energetics. Uh, people like to joke it's also energy tech So it was almost like,
0: it was like, you had like a wedding planner. Yeah. They were like, like, do you like glass A or glass B? Yeah. And they they, at the time, like, They still do, but at the time,
1: they had uh, an extremely brilliant CTO. Okay, Um, he he really helped us early on on positioning the product from a technology. Like, so he was the first one to introduce us. I was a full Oracle guy at that point. Okay, he introduced us to Postgres, and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. It's a free database that does everything Oracle does, and even better in a lot (laughs) of cases. because Oracle just
0: costs... Oh,
1: it's impossible to, to... As a small startup, you just can't. Right. The numbers
0: work. Right, um, Which almost seems like a terrible idea for them because they're positioning themselves out of the market because mm-hmm. people like you are not using them. Yeah,
1: no, they, and, and we'll never... They, they
0: have a free tier that's... You, you quickly get to the limit of that tier very yeah. as a startup. Yeah. Salesforce has the, kind of the same thing with Heroku and...
1: Yeah, you know. yeah. And...
0: And... They just
1: positioned the product. They helped design the company, designed the, the products around the company, um, taught us a lot about marketing. Uh, again, this is two computer guys who have an idea for a computer system or a computer product, but not an actual company, marketing, all those things. So they built that up. And we started working exclusively with hedge funds and, and providing these forward-looking congestion calls on the grid uh, for each of the, the future markets, both the month ahead and the day ahead markets. And it was going really well. Um, angel investment, uh, we, we got enough in to survive for a while. But it, one thing that kind of started working against us is the trading market started drying up. And the Why did that up. happen? Just market conditions. Um, various things that probably shouldn't really... So go. people just stopped trading? No, you just... there's There's a cost of doing business for these hedge funds. Okay. And they it cost too much money to trade power than they were getting out of it. Okay. They could take that capital and put it elsewhere and make better money. Got it. Um, and we started, the, the well started drawing. The companies couldn't afford to spend money on technology. Yeah. Um, that's the other thing I learned is hedge funds, if, they're, if their capital is not being traded, they think it's a waste of capital. If the capital is being spent on technology, it's, it's a much harder conversation to have with hedge funds. Okay. Because it's, they're, They want everything to be working. Got it. Um, So it got to a point where we were, uh, a lot of the hedge funds, some hedge funds even kind of screwed us out of some money, knowing that we were a startup and could
0: come after them legally. So you're saying that a large hedge fund that owed you money because you provided a service to them just didn't pay their bills? Yeah. Because they knew that you were not going to... I think there was a week where we made one hedge fund
1: $500,000... And then they just stopped communicating. What did they owe you? Uh, at the time, I think it was a twenty percent deal of whatever
0: profit. Oh, were. it was a percentage. So, so you made them five hundred thousand dollars, and they owed you twenty percent of that. Yeah. Which and is they what hundred thousand dollars? Uh, $100, 000. 100, 000. Yeah. Right. no, hundred thousand, no. hundred thousand. sorry, I was actually uh, you, you, you you scared for a this. second. I was like, so. But like that's that's a that's a so they made job. the money and just ran yeah.
1: They, and then uh, we heard yeah. one of the traders that was there that went to another firm that we we are friendly with still to this day, and told us they actually tried reverse engineering our technology. They tried stealing what we were doing. Uh, the hedge fund
0: did. Yeah. These hedge funds sound like great people to work with. Uh, yeah, you should watch the show Billions. <laughs> I do, I do. <laughs> um, okay, so hedge funds were. Stealing your commissions and um, trying to reverse engineer what you were doing so they could steal your your IP.
1: Yeah. And, Fantastic. And so the revenue started drying up. Angel Investments were getting kind of scared. Uh, they didn't want to put in a lot more money back into the business because they didn't know if the business model would actually work out. And we got constant feedback from industry partners that... Are back to that Sim file. It is the best in market. You guys are by far the best, most accurate. If only you had the genscape generation forecast. Who's genscape? So genscape is a company that started in Louisville, Kentucky, who built a business around monitoring generators to, d- to tell their customers what those generators are running at, and they have a series of patents on, on ways that they do this. Uh, but at the core of it. These traders in this industry like to know what all the various generators are running at so they know
0: if that generator is either offline, online, ramping up, ramping down, all the way back to that reliability conversation we had. So, okay, okay, okay. So these are the guys that have the kind of like live data. Yes. Because we have this once a week snapshot. Yes. Which is very useful, but like it's not giving you true live minute-by-minute data. But now you've got how many of these generators do they have – that have this data output they, they they covered about 75% of the generation so, so we're talking thousands if not tens of thousands or more generators uh, no there's not that many
1: gen- there's only 500 generators in Texas oh so, but they, okay. they have the big ones all monitored okay so they're, they're the one they have the nukes monitored they have the, the natural gas ones So they can tell their, their customers what the approximate output of that generator is in every moment
0: And okay and, and every snapshot of every second yeah and so that was kind of the missing piece the the data that you needed to kind of complete the holistic view of okay, you know how much it should cost for, for, for energy where there to be, can
1: be con- congestion and all that stuff okay so we reached out to Genscape as a competitor of theirs and into the idea that we wanted to do a data sharing deal and the conversation I would say in the same phone call pivoted to them being interested in acquiring us okay because they recognized based on us telling them that we're using the SIM file, and they, they had an idea what the SIM file was. They didn't know how to use it, but they knew what it was. Um, and they saw the value in both myself and my business partner's work experience that this is an acquisition target. And it quickly elevated into that conversation. Um, how So how long did it take to close the deal? That was probably the most excruciating six months of my life. <laughs> six months, okay. Because... I was not, at that point, it's been months since I've gotten a paycheck. Uh, basically savings depleted, living off credit cards. Nice. Um, the deal started, the conversation started in the spring, and the deal wasn't closed until late November, early December. Okay. So a lot of just showing up at that Thinktiv office and sitting there, and you're, you're basically consulted to not make any changes to the product. So So you're not doing anything? No, no customers. What were you doing on a day-to-day
0: basis? Trying to improve things without massively improving, or massively changing things. So you still felt the need to, like, change things, even though they kind of said, don't make changes. Yeah, but I mean, like, there's massive changes, and then there's like, oh, I can make this more, I can make this
1: query faster, I can make this function
0: faster. Got it, okay. So, like, operational. So six months of just kind of, like, tweaking, you know... So the employees went and worked on other projects
1: at the, during that time. Okay. Um, I actually worked on another, just consulted on a small little project. And so, and so you sold to them? Sold to them, yeah. Uh, they hired us, um, and it has been fantastic. They, How many years ago was that?
0: That was in 2013. How many years did you actually go through that energetics kind of? Developing the software energetics was December
1: 2010 until the spring of 2013. So three years. Yeah, roughly.
0: Yeah um, And then you've been with genscape for just over five five years. Okay um, And it's just you know now that they own the software you're making big changes to it.
1: Yeah uh, Turn it into a SaaS platform which for people software as a service so you don't need to install anything on your computer. You just log in. So previously
0: it. the hedge funds were having to install the stuff. No, we would just deliver a spreadsheet each morning. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we would run everything on our side
1: and then deliver a spreadsheet. And so now it
0: like truly is kind of like a Bloomberg terminal.
1: Yes. Got it. Yeah. So they can log in. They can visualize the data. They can run their own custom forecasts. They can use this network topology however they want. They can use the generation information from Genscape with this network
0: topology however they want. When when you sold to Genscape, was it kind of like an all cash deal or are you like also vested in two, their two success? So it was fully cash?
1: Right? Yeah, fully cash. One upfront and then three or payout based on EBITDA. Got it. Okay.
0: Okay. And so, like, where's the future of,
1: of the product go? So that's really interesting. Uh, Genscape is um, going through a transition period right now. Genscape. Uh, kind of fell into that legacy system as i was describing before and we're utilizing the uh, it's now called congestion iq platform to modernize a lot of the products um, within the company but also being able to um, bring together a lot of their products now from a strategy perspective uh, i've i've moved into a product manager role and i'm working with my boss and really positioning Genscape to try to become this all-encompassing solution for power companies because it's, as I'm sure people have come to realize, this is a very complex industry, a very niche industry. There's lots of customer types, lots of requirements. Um, you can't have one product that fits and that for all these customer types, so you need to be able to create a more holistic solution to allow our customers to extract the value out of these products from the most empathetic way possible. Uh, we don't want to make their life easier. We want to position our products to make their life easier.
0: Okay, so where can people find you online? What's interesting to, to follow you, like social network-wise or just on the web? Uh, Twitter, I don't do a lot of Twitter, but I follow. You follow me now, though. I follow you now. That's uh, important. ATX Canadian. ATX yeah. Canadian. Yeah. Uh, well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Um, that was I think it was really long but really in depth and very complex and, but we unpacked a lot of things I think it's kind of important if we had done this kind of in a shorter stint it probably would have made a lot less sense but I'm, I'm glad that you, you know, took the time to actually kind of explain a lot of the minute details
1: yeah
0: um, so again we have a phone number uh, if you want to talk to Matt or, or me or just give general feedback The number is 737-204-8711. You can just call and leave a message, and we'll check it. Uh, But this is Looking Backward, where we dive into the deep, deep details of an entrepreneur's background. And I am your host, Chad Sikocic, signing off.